truth, honor, loyalty, character. Welcome to the Long Green Line podcast. This is Matty Arnold guiding you through conversations about Coach Joe Newton's life, legacy, and his impact on the eternity of coaching. We're going to be digging into masculinity, love, and of course, how cross-country is like life. Hello, and welcome to the Long Green Line podcast. This is Matty Arnold, the director and producer of the Long Green Line documentary, a feature film following the career and season of Coach Joe Newton. I'm here today with Kyle Whitlin. Kyle was the musical composer on the film, and I'd love to just have Kyle say hello. Hi, guys. Hi, Matt. So Kyle and I were roommates during the production of this film. We shot the. We lived in Los Angeles at the time, and our my producing partner Brady was moved back to his parents' basement, in right outside of Chicago in Elmhurst, Illinois. And he was filming every single day after school, and I would fly back on weekends to film the major meets and to film all the interviews. Kyle was working here in Los Angeles, writing music. And we shared an office, and we had an editor that came in. I did the motion graphics, Alex did the editing, and Kyle did the musical composing. Kyle would make track. Well, we'll let Kyle tell the story. So, Kyle, tell us about your career. My current career has me as the music director at a small private school in Studio City, California, called Bridges. And I'm running the program there, and I'm composing music for film and TV, and any multimedia that needs original music. Okay, so let's start. But let's go to the start of your career. Where? How did you? How did you start your career? Let's see. I was. I'm from Toronto, and I had a friend working here in LA at a big entertainment management company called The Firm, and he was able to get me an interview. So I flew out and interviewed. I got the job. I was working in the music department in Beverly Hills at the firm with all these big rock and pop acts. And it was really, it felt like the coolest job for a while. And then slowly, as the months rolled on, I felt a little voice inside of me. And it was just saying, like, something's wrong. This is not the right place for you. And I kind of tried to ignore the voice until one day the universe sort of intervened and I got fired. And that was like the best thing that ever happened to me. So once I was sort of down at the bottom of the barrel, I started paying attention to these people who were writing music for film and TV called composers. And I didn't really know what they did, but then I started really listening and I was like, hey, you know, I can write that kind of music that I'm hearing on on these shows on TV. And one thing led to another, and I applied to the UCLA uh, Extension Film Scoring Program, got accepted to that, and that was right around the time where you and Brady were starting to do the, the film. So the timing was pretty perfect. Awesome. So I, I, I remember a very specific conversation we had at that time, and in the industry, the talent is referred to as the talent. And I remember you very specifically referring to the talent and you said something to the effect of like, I'm sick of working for the talent. I want to start, I want to be the talent. Oh, that's right. I said, because when I was working in management, in music management, I said, I don't want to work for the band. I want to be in the band or I want to be the band. And it's because like, 
I grew up playing instruments and playing in bands and like jamming and you know that's who I am. I am an artist myself. So working on the business side of the industry just turned out to be a wrong fit for me. And I'm glad that I got to experience it because I'm smarter for it. But now I'm living like the most honest existence because I'm teaching music to young students. So I'm sharing like my passions and I'm writing music, which is getting, you know, licensed in in TV and and film and, and whatnot. So I, I feel very, very blessed that I got to experience the flip side of that to know that I didn't want to do it. And those lessons are like so important. It doesn't matter. Like you're never, it's never wrong. Even when you learn that you don't want to do something or it's not the right fit, at least you learned that about yourself. And so, you know, people out there listening are probably like, how did this Canadian musical composer end up in this Chicago-based film coming out of Los Angeles. <laughs> and I'm going to answer that question for us. So Kyle and I both worked at a summer camp in Maine at a place called Camp Wakila. Rhymes with tequila, but it's spelled <laughs> differently. And we were at Camp Wakila, and Kyle had grown up with a long history as a, as a camper. And I think I met Kyle in my second summer working at this camp. And it was a very primitive camp. There's just you know, bare bones, wood cabins with one light bulb electricity. And that was about it. But Kyle found his way into the dining hall quite often. And we would be, you know, at night you have a night off because they rotate through your the cabins and the responsibility of the counselors. So, so periodically you have a night off. And when Kyle was off, I would know he was off because you could hear this piano playing from the dining hall. <laughs> and so very often we would kind of wander around the campus at night hearing the piano and we'd listen to Kyle just jam out and Kyle if you've heard it you've heard it in the movie I don't know if you heard it there's other places you can hear him there's movies you can see that his music's in very excited about the track he had licensed for Saturday Night Live at one point but piano has always been your is that your primary instrument? piano and drums and percussion those are my primaries okay so the piano it, it always blew me away the way that Kyle could play the piano and he improvised quite heavily which was very similar to the way that I acted and wrote at the time. But tell me about just your musical lineage and how you started in your drums and piano specialty. I believe that when I was about 12 years old, I was banging on pots and pans in my mom's kitchen. And there was a kid in my class in Toronto who was selling a drum set. And my parents were supportive and we bought Nelson Lee's drum set and I had been taking piano lessons probably when I was younger but that's kind of stopped I played flute at one point and then when I got into high school I was playing tenor saxophone and at one point I was in the you know the A jazz combo and the director said okay Kyle I need you to play drums now and I had recently gotten the kit and so I was playing uh, drums and sax and then my private drum teacher Mr. Cheeseman he, during my drum lessons, he would say, do you want to learn some piano? And so every fourth lesson, he would just show me some basic blues piano. And, and I kind of just fell in love with it. And so when I would come home from school every day, instead of turning on the TV or playing Nintendo, I would go to the piano for, you know, 30, 45, 60 minutes every day. Or I'd go into the basement and just jam, jam out on my drums. And that's really like how I ground myself even to this day like that's my 
that's my meditation that's my form of yoga is like improvising on an instrument and i feel very fortunate to have to have that and and literally the year that i worked in at the firm in music management that was the one year that i like didn't play an instrument almost at all and that was the furthest away from my true self that i that i that i had ever been so so <clears throat> let's cut over to the long green line so we talked i said kyle i want you to do the I want you to be the composer on this film. You're like, oh, I don't know what that means, but let's try it. So how did you come up with the music, especially the theme? Like the theme is the song that you hear at the end of the film most clearly, I think. It's, it's an- peppered in throughout the entire, almost every song you can hear the theme. It's a very simple, hummable theme. But you, Matt, you said to me, like at the beginning, you're like, I want the music to be a cross between Moby and Vangelis. And for those of you who don't know who Vangelis is, he's a, he did the music for Chariots of Fire. And he was like an early like electronic composer. And we all kind of fell in love with track from the Chariots of Fire. I definitely didn't say Vangelis because I think this is the first time I've ever well, heard then, that Well, then word. you said so Chariots of Chariot Fire. Fire. Yes, yes. And, and, and when a director gives you that crystal clear like that that made a lot of sense to me because you weren't like hitting it too over the head but you gave me very strong reference points so that was like a really great initial road you know road road sign roadmap yeah roadmap yeah and i think yeah like moby was really hot back then that was when like his record play was out and had been licensed like 500 times yeah yeah. world and so his that vibe was in the consciousness and then Mm -hmm. chariots of fire was something that just felt such a like such a running like a natively running song and i think still like totally it, it is, you hear that song and you just like you that's just right like run in slow motion totally <clears throat> and so how did you develop that theme well i think at that time because i was in school studying film composition at ucla so all this the great knowledge from the professors was sort of infiltrating my mind so i i just i remember thinking okay the theme should be very simple and memorable. So I used like, it, it's, it's really basic what the theme is, but it works because you can remember it. Anyone, I know you could hum it. I know I could hum it. And I wanted to play to my strengths. So my strengths were like, you know, sort of new age, bluesy, jazzy piano. Obviously the score wasn't, we didn't do blues or jazz, but I used piano as like a lead instrument pretty much on a lot of the tracks. There's a lot of piano. And then my strengths as a drummer and percussionist and just rhythm, you know, I'm very, I play every instrument like a drum, if you will. So, yeah, I mean, wow, how, how, what? I don't know, man. We, we had, my station was in the other room. You were here and I guess we were kind of trading ideas back and forth. I must have written some things that you liked and then some things you said let's try it a different way but because we were together like living together and in the office it was that much more fluid and organic and i you know i talk about that a lot with my students and like because i do not know how to do anything musically my main contribution is for music is as an audience member but we had to create a vocabulary that we could communicate with and so really it just, we, you know, I would describe music in color 
and in tone i could i could choose instruments like somewhat you know i knew strings versus you know drums but beyond that it was like very there's a very general vocabulary that i would give you that then you would create you know really meaningful music with so talk about the instrumentation how did you choose like the palette that you you landed on that's a great question and uh, you know i i probably like the best thing you can do as an artist or especially as a composer is before you start writing any music is to create like a custom template based on what that project needs so of course this is a long time ago i don't remember exactly but we probably i probably had a template with you know 20 or 30 different instruments i had all the orchestra sounds like i know french horn you liked you liked the french horn i remember i played you something with the french horn and you you definitely liked that and then there was a, an electronic element based on your moby direction to me so there was synth bass the drums were electronic the piano was acoustic then we had orchestral percussion I know some of the tracks, there was, you know, timpani and wind chime and woodblock, triangle. And then we had a good friend of ours, Henry Fenton. We recorded him doing live 12-string guitar on the opening credits song. And uh, he played a bit of electric guitar on a couple of the other cues. And then, of course, we brought in that wonderful singer, Laura Ward, and we put her in the bathroom, in the bathtub, and that's where we recorded her vocal for the end credit, the big soaring end credits theme. And we also brought in a live violin player who is playing on that end credits theme with Laura singing. Yeah, so so the entire score, and a lot, you know, you, you, you just threw a lot of instruments out there. And mm. if you could see the small, like, 12 foot by 12 foot office that we were working out of, you wouldn't there were there were no instruments in there so a lot of those were digital virtual instruments and the entire score was written you you, you used synthetic is that yeah. the right word yeah we were in the box they were all the sounds except for what we just mentioned the acoustic guitar the electric guitar the vocals and a solo violin everything else was virtual instruments like in the box and even back then whatever 12 years ago whatever it was the virtual instruments were pretty highly evolved. A lot of them sound pretty realistic. The average ear, you know, can't tell the difference. And and so you you laid in you 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 wrote the whole score with synthetic violins. That's right. And that was like the one instrument that we we're like maybe we have a little human touch on there. Totally. And so we a friend of mine Anna Cummings she came in and played the violin parts on top of the digital parts. So you that's had right. the digital stems written. I think you even wrote the the sheet music for that's her. right we yeah that's right and she came in in the same office yeah. that we all that we all worked in we yeah. insulated it a little bit and we recorded live violin that's right and coincidentally she her father was one of the founder he's one of the he's a, an incredible innovator in education really his her father was the founder of crossroads schools of new road school of camino real wow uh, camino nuevo which is a charter school, a conglomerate in Los Angeles. But yeah, Anna was really, really great on that. And it just was coincidental that she happened to be, have the aptitude as a violinist to come in and play. And you had the tracks ready to be just recorded on. And i um, so glad that we did that. That was like really, really a special moment. Well, it just adds that that extra layer, the large layer of humanity. You know, you just mix the live player a bit louder than the virtual 
samples, and it makes a huge difference. And then the Laura Award, the, the female vocal. Like, yeah. Talk about that choice. It was a mostly male film. Right. Yeah, that's a good point, Matt. I don't, I don't know. I, I just think, like, as an artist, you got to, like, play to your strengths. And, like, I've always had that. I think listening to, you know, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, I guess it's the ending track where there's a, a female vocal. I think that made such an impression on me because... I think another documentary that I scored after The Long Green Line, I also brought a female vocal into the sort of end credit, like the, the big moment at the end of the film. I don't know. There's just something about a voice and about a female voice that I feel unites or it's like hearing Mother Earth, you know, and yeah. And there's something else I really love about that final theme at the end of the film because you have both the female vocalist and then you also sampled Newton's voice. Oh, that was awesome. And I, what is it? He says like, I love what I'm doing. I that's love right. what I'm doing. I that, love what yeah, I'm no, doing. Yeah, no, that's, it's my job. It's my passion. Is that what he said? It was something like that. Yeah, I think that that was it. It's my job. It's my passion. Yeah, and we used it kind of, we sampled it and used it rhythmically at the very end as the credits are rolling. And, and that's cool. That's fresh. I don't know that that's been done very often in documentary scores. I think we may have done something new there. I personally would love to hear more Long Green Line music, and I'll give you all the stems of his audio. Because That's cool, man. We can do something. He has passed away, but the, the messages that he shared were so powerful, and I think any way that we can... And so one of the things that's going to be a part of this podcast is I'm going to be releasing one interview at a time, just the raw interviews from the documentary that, I, that he recorded just oh, sitting cool. down with me. Nice. I think we have like a total of like eight hours of full just conversations with Joe Newton. And so... Yeah, there's another song that the, the, there's like the Palatine song or I don't know. It just really I, I know that kids I, I know a lot of like high schools, you know, they'll make like their annual like their their season slideshow kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I've heard I haven't seen it, but I know that there are ki- a lot of schools use the Long Green Line soundtrack. Really? For those, oh, I for love those that. Presentations. That's awesome, man. So it's pretty exciting. So tell us, like, how do you connect to the film in general? That's a great question, and I'll give you the different angles of how I connect, connected and still connect to the Long Green Line. So, first of all, I was, I was on my high school's cross-country team. I was, we were training with Paul Craig, who's a Canadian Olympic champion athlete. And so we had a really robust program, and I was, you know, I was one of the top four runners. So, immediately, I, I knew what the footage you were showing and sharing with me, I was, I knew exactly what the feeling was. And when like, when they're running up the hill, that, how that influenced some of the music that I wrote, like, it's because I lived that. I lived that pain and that gain. So cross country for sure hooked me immediately. And then, you know, having the, the tight relationship with you, like was, was another, we kind of had a short, even though we hadn't done this type of collaboration exactly, we had a shorthand as friends and as artists. And then just that quote, I, f- I don't, I forget who says it, but cross country is like life. And that is, that is just true forever and always. 
and you know sometimes it's flat and you got a lot of energy and sometimes you're going to step in mud and sometimes when you're going up that hill that's when you need to you feel like you're not going to be able to make it but you got to turn on the jets and you got to pass some people on the hill and make that sacrifice so i i will eternally like feel connected to this film and it was the first feature length real professional project that i did and so i'll never forget forget that and you know even listening to the music I listened on the way over here in the car to refresh myself. And I was like, you know what? Like, I'm still proud of it. The mix was not great, but the, the, the emotion is there. There's still moments where like my hair stood on end because that's what we did. Yeah, I think the score does not, does not disappoint. And uh, I hope people listen to this will download it and however they can give you Spotify juice or whatever it takes these days to validate a musical artist. One of the things Newton always said, and, you know, he never discriminated. He never said you can't be on the team, but he always said you have to show up every day for practice. And so the biggest the group that that got in the way of that were the music kids, kids that were in the band and mm, orchestra. Right. But one of the things Newton said is he loved those kids Mm -hmm. because the discipline it takes for music is very similar to the discipline it takes for running. And so you are both a runner and a musician. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that particular. Well, you actually, what you said at the beginning, I'm going to explore that for a second. You were saying that Newton, he let everyone on the team and... My current job was the music director at Bridges Academy. When I got interviewed and when I got the job, the headmaster said my mandate was to let anyone into the music program who wanted to be there. Whereas the director before me was only letting in like the the most talented 5% of students. So I completely connect with, with Newton and the film again on that level in my career right now, you know, as a music educator. And it's so amazing to like let someone in who doesn't seem like they have much talent or much promise and all of a sudden a couple months or years go by and next thing you know they're you know the lead drummer in in the rock band and you they're playing a, a show on on sunset and you know who would have known unless we gave all the kids who wanted to try it the opportunity so i think that's beautiful that's so t- tell us more about Bridges, because I think there's also more than just that one connection to the film. That's true. Bridges Academy is uh, a college prep school, and uh, we cater to a population of students known as twice exceptional, or 2E. And it means that they've got like a gift and a learning disability. So the kids are often coming from previous like schooling experiences that haven't been very positive and the way we sort of lead the education at bridges is it's strength based so like whatever the kids are exceptional at whatever whatever their gifts are that's how we're going to tailor their learning and what i learned from like working at bridges all these years is like it's it is it is about life again it's treating everyone equally like it just doesn't matter they they don't have to be considered twice exceptional you just got to like you know treat people equally and accept people for who they are and what they are and you know it's like so simple that most people i think might miss it 
you got you have a lot of autistic kids at your school or kids these are, are on these the are kids all on the spectrum there's there's autism but they're all very high functioning so but yeah there's there's asperger's and a lot of ADHD and you know social anxieties and just they're quirky kids they're they're quirky kids but there's never a dull day at bridges and so the quote that you brought up that cross country is like life yes. was John Fisher's quote right and he does have he falls somewhere on the autistic spectrum right but i think you know that was one of the things that lately people people it's really come back because there's this big movement especially at private schools in america about diversity and diversity equity and inclusion and so those are kids that have tended to get overlooked and now they're starting to appreciate the neurodivergency that they bring yeah. And so I think it's really great that, you know, these kids, you're, you're able to work with that population that is, is, you know, exceptional. Atypical. I'll brag for you for a second. I want you to talk about your Grammy nomination. Yes. In the last, like, several years, the Grammys, there was a new category for the Music Educator Award. So I, I did, I was nominated uh, for a Grammy as, as a music educator. I didn't get it, but it was it was cool to have that nomination for sure. Was it a pleasure to be nominated? It was a pleasure to be nominated. I, I definitely told all my friends that I'm Grammy nominated. But yeah, and you are, and you deserve it, and congrats. I remember one point, I was living in Chicago at the time, and still, I think, so it was probably, you know, before 2002 or 2003, and I was at a laundromat, and I remember specifically being on the phone call. And it was like, it was like I had just gotten a cell phone and like I was stoked that you had like 10 cents a minute to Canada. And I had one of those single ear pod things in that were corded and you'd plug it in one ear and had a microphone. And I was in the middle of doing laundry and kept talking. And we were talking and you were telling me your life plan. <laughs> Do you remember your life plan at the time? Yes. Of course. I mean, you are, you are, you know, you were a conduit for me to get onto this life path. And uh, yeah, because back then I was in Toronto and I was telling you that I was going to go to law school and become a lawyer. And, uh, and you, you quickly cut me off. I, do you remember what you said? Can we say that on, on the <laughs> air here? <laughs> Oh, that's a Joe Newton podcast. So he really can say any words. But yeah, I don't know. I probably said, "What? What the fuck are you talking about? You're not. You don't want to be a lawyer, right?" And because music was truly your 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 clear passion and your yeah. and your gift. <coughs> but how did that shift? Did you go to law school? No, I. Right when you and I had that call, I think that's when our other buddy out here, Dave who was working at the firm, he, him and I spoke probably right around that same several weeks. And he's like, I can get you an interview if you can come out here. And I came out, my cousin's like ex-brother-in-law let me stay with him. And, you know, I got, I got the job and, and next thing you know, like we're 17 years later, you know, I've got a wife and I've got a seven-year-old daughter and, you know, and a house and a dog. And it's like, I'm just living my life, but thank God music is, is what I'm doing every day. And, and that I just, I'm every cell in my body is like breathing. It's, it's honest. Everything is honest and it feels, I feel lucky. 
So how do you summarize that? Listen to your dreams and follow it? It's such a good question, Matt. Yeah, you, you, you just got it. Like, you know, I want to give one, one tale here. When I auditioned, sorry, when I interviewed for the job at Bridges, one point in the interview, the, the headmaster said, so Kyle, you know, why music? Why music? And I said, when I was in high school, there was a, a guest speaker. He was like the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. And he said to us, he's like, listen, in your life, you have these arrows and your arrows generally point in a certain direction. And like, you're going to get spun around time and time again, but you should pay attention. Once you stop spinning, where do your arrows point? And for me in that like blink of an eye, it was so clear that it was music because I was already, you know, I was playing in a band with my friends. I was in the, the jazz combo at school. I was taking lessons. I was like every day I was doing music because that's what made me feel amazing. So my arrows always pointed to music and, and they still do. So whoever's listening to this podcast, like where do your arrows point and never ignore that. Don't hide that. Even if you don't do it professionally, you always have to have that as part of your daily like routine. And isn't that the logo for cross country? Don't they usually put an XC with an arrow through it or something? Maybe I'm making that up. <laughs> and so what advice do you have for people that are musically inclined and sort of flirting with the idea of being a lawyer? Oh man. I mean, like you got to listen to that voice um, inside your head. You, you got to listen to your heart. It's not a joke because if you ignore it, that's when you can get, you'll get tripped up. So try and, you know, try and figure out what your strengths are. What, what are you good at? What do you love? And then explore the job possibilities down those paths. And don't be, don't be afraid of technology. De technology definitely helped me. Like I, I couldn't have, I couldn't be a composer the way composers were, you know, 50 years ago before technology became the, the main part of, of a composer's toolkit. So em embrace the technology, learn how to play some real instruments. You don't have to be a virtuoso, but like, Get some piano chops down, you know, learn how to play the basic chords on a guitar. Yeah. So did you do the entire score on a 12-inch MacBook Pro? W I did you think have a, so. Did you upgrade? Well, that? you probably gave me an external, like, monitor, like a visual monitor. So I probably had in the office here a bigger visual to look at. But, like, I remember writing cues on my laptop, like, uh, at band rehearsal, like in, in Mason's backyard, I, I, I did, or in my wife's, we weren't married at the time, but in her guest house where she was staying, like she'd be sleeping and I'd have my headphones on and I had a, a three octave MIDI controller keyboard. And like some of those cues were done, which is amazing because when, you know, when you can get out of your usual workplace, you can be inspired in different ways. So it's amazing the technology that we have you know probably I, I did some work on an airplane between la and toronto and any kids that are listening to us are going to like google the specs on a 12 inch macbook pro and they're going to be like oh yeah my iphone's better 
Oh, for sure. Are you kidding me? No, I mean, you know, some people frown upon it, but like even like a program like GarageBand, which is free on any Mac, you can do a ton, a ton, and you can sound great even with GarageBand. I use Logic, which is the pro version of GarageBand, and I'm teaching that, you know, to my students. But yeah, the technology is staggering. Like in GarageBand, you have like what used to cost like, you know, a quarter of a million dollars, you know, 20 years ago. Yeah, it probably did when we started making this movie. <laughs> the, the, the anecdote that I always tell is that, you know, Brady and I had to make a real hard decision, and that was, do we shoot this film in HD? And at the time, we were right at the end of standard definition. Hmm. And HD cameras costed a lot more, and then the hard drive space that they took up was like exponentially more. Oh, man. So we bought a 500 gigabyte hard drive. You, I'm sure you have at least a 500 gigabyte hard drive somewhere. I have a graveyard of them in my drawer. <laughs> a graveyard, for sure. I have a graveyard <laughs> of Long Green Line 500 gigabyte hard drives. But the first hard drive that we bought, the first time that we started ingesting footage, cost us like $1,300. <laughs> And if you look at like a Best Buy weekend, a Sunday ad right now, it probably costs $29.95. Oh my God. That's technology for you. And so that, you know, that is part of the dramatic leaps that we've, we've taken. And it's pretty amazing. But I'm, I'm so grateful that we were able to kind of like take that journey. So Kyle, was there anything in the film, that anything that Newton said that kind of just helped you keep moving on? I am only coming up with this now, but... How could what I was in, what, what I was, you know, when you're scoring a film or when you're scoring a scene, like you are replaying that scene over and over and over and over again because you're writing your music. Like it takes a long time to get it right. So pretty much every time the guy opens his mouth, there's a something to be learned from it. And I wish I had... I remember a couple of the chapters in the movie were like his like Ten Commandments. Am I am I remembering correctly? <laughs> that was from the Bible. <laughs> no, was it? He dude. He had like he had a list. He had like a well. He had like the four rules. What I were think. the four rules? Uh, don't always be on time. Don't be late. Or no, you get one unexcused absence. Okay. Don't be late. Okay. No drink, drugs, or alcohol. Okay. And do your best. Okay, well, even those four, like if you apply those to like any part of your life, you'll be ahead of the game if you follow those. So absolutely. Are you kidding me? And then let's talk more about the gear. You used, uh, I know you talked about GarageBand. You did not do this in GarageBand. No, no, no. I, I was using Logic Pro, which is Apple's professional version of GarageBand, as I said. And then you know you as a composer like you're gonna need an audio interface that's like a box that you plug a microphone into that then connects to your computer and it helps translate you know whatever the mic is picking up into the digital ones and zeros that get logged onto your hard drive and and run through the program so we had the i had a couple mics I had the audio interface. I was using like an original M box and then the laptop running, running logic. I had 
a bunch of virtual instruments like logic itself comes with a boatload of virtual instruments like that run the gamut from electronic stuff to orchestral stuff and world stuff like the bang for your buck that you're going to get with logic is is incredible it's 199 bucks and you can't go wrong with logic and then i had also started investing in some third-party virtual instruments like you know, higher end orchestral sample libraries and, you know, a couple extra synthesizer virtual instruments. But pretty much you can really do like you can do anything you need to do in the box just with your laptop. I, I think I had the MIDI controller, like a small little keyboard that I would sort of travel around town with writing different um, cues. And then I also had the huge, like, full-length Yamaha. You actually, we went to Guitar Center when we first moved in and bought that keyboard, which I'm still using to this day. It's the same day I bought this microphone that I'm speaking into right now. Nice. Yeah, don't, don't be afraid if and when you can. Like, if you're doing this for professionally definitely you know you're don't think of it as a luxury like you want to get the best gear that you can buy because it's going to make you sound better it's going to make you it's just going to make you more more pro so i want to i want to play a couple i want to play a couple tracks here and just see if you have commentary on them but you can't hear it as good as me So there's that Laura Ward right away. Yeah. And the violin, live violin re-recorded. So we're kind of building here. We're getting ready for the big sort of climax where you see the team get off the bus or Coach Newton. It's like, it is the climax at the end of the film. And so we're building here. You know something's coming. And in a moment, it's going to unleash with Laura's vocal. The theme was sort of being tinkled on the piano underneath her lead vocal. We got French horns here. We've got electronic drums auto filtering up and down. A little release here. You can hear the live violin. And you're going to hear Joe Newton's voice in a second. I love what I'm doing. I think this is the moment when there's a darker, darker credit. I love what I'm doing. It's my job. It's my passion. That's right. Some reverb, passion, passion, passion. That's, yeah, that's right, some delay. 
And that theme, just I kept playing it over and over. Different tempos, different instruments, but really that progression with this theme are in every cue you hear the theme in some shape or form. And the tempo, the slow, big step tempo, that's a direct result of Matt citing Chariots of Fire. The magic, the sparkles of the, the orchestral percussion. And this is the end credit crawl that's at the end of the film where the, the credits are rolling by. So you need a piece of music to carry you through. So that's the French horns still? That's, that's right, French horns. A very noble sound. Theme again. What is that? That? It's electronic drums being filtered where the filter's opening up and then it's closing so it feels like they're moving. And a lot of this now is kind of like filler for the title, closing title. That's right. Here comes Laura. And there'll be one more of, of Joe Newton. And an upright bass here. And this is kind of me being myself. Like, I was improvising. If I wasn't playing the theme, I was improvising and playing lines that were just inside of me. That I'd, you know, been playing for years when I was improvising at the... I love what I'm doing. I love what I'm doing. I love what I'm doing. The piano. the same so <clears throat> I told a friend of mine that I was going to be recording this tonight and they recommended that I ask about love apparently if you look at my body of work every single movie and video and project that I've made has love as a central theme and this film in particular deals with a form of male love that we don't necessarily talk about in real life I think Ted Lasso, the new Apple show, kind of deals with these themes of non-toxic masculinity. But love just becomes, it, it's such a powerful, a powerful force. And I just, I'm wondering how you made that choice. Because we never had that conversation about any of the, what, what audio stems to use of Newton or anything. You just brought that in and I was like, oh, that works. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> how do you choose that? I mean, that's just like your... You know, as an as an artist, you're always having to edit things and edit yourself or, you know, growing up, you know, you had to learn how to write an essay and like collect quotes. And so for me, it was just like, what are the most powerful words from Newton in this whole documentary? So I think I just pulled those lines because those were the most universal lines and the lines that I would want for 
the viewers and for my family and for me, you know, I love what I'm doing. I loved what I was doing at the time. And thank God I still love what I'm doing. And yeah, you, you want your job. If you can have passion at work, then that's even 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 greater. And, and I remember a specific Valentine's Day party that we threw here at this apartment. Mm-hmm. And it was passion themed. Mm-hmm. And I think everyone had to wear red or something or all the lighting was red. And it was... Mary, it was a line that you said either in an email or I think it was email because I think text hadn't been invented yet. (laughs) (laughs) But you said, I want to marry my passion and not my lust. Yeah. Tell me about that line. Because Newton also says, he says love and he says passion Mm -hmm. and they're all in there. Mm -hmm. And so subconsciously you were working that same theme. Yes, absolutely, man. What does that mean, marry your passion, not your lust? I think... I think I had been in a relationship, you know, early, like before we made the film, I had been in a relationship with a woman and I realized during it or towards the end of it or definitely in hindsight that it was a relationship based like on lust, right? And there's nothing wrong with that, but when you're going to marry someone or when you're going to get married to a profession you definitely don't want it to be hinging on lust because I feel like you'll be let down because lust fades out and and fades away. Whereas passion, when you have passion, if you're lucky enough to have some passion, which we all probably have passion, some of us are able to explore it maybe more than others, but you definitely want to marry your your passion and not your lust. And how has that um, informed your life? Like, or how has that, how has your approach to love, or how, how has love informed your work? That's great. Well, I guess love is something that is, I don't know if strong is the word, but, you know, because, because of working at Bridges, I'm so tuned into what people's strengths are. You know, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? I have weaknesses, you have weaknesses, you know, the president has weaknesses, the Pope, you know, no one is perfect. We all have strengths and weaknesses. So I guess just I'm focused, the older I get since I've become a a dad, uh, I just, I'm at every moment in, in every interaction with, it doesn't matter who it is. It could be the bus driver. It could be the store clerk. It could be my mom. Like, you just treat everyone with with love and acceptance and tolerance and open-mindedness. And, you know, it, that has been, like, I think one of my strengths is that I can get down with anybody because I am approaching every interaction with, with love and sort of open openness. So I, wanna, I do want to talk a little bit more about your fatherhood. So one of the fathers that we interviewed had a great line where he was describing... The, the path that his son walked. And he said that, you know, there's a place in a young man's life where the father's words are no longer as valuable as they once were. And that's the moment where the coach comes in. And so as a father, have you dealt with anything where that, where you experience something like that, where like your child is you, you, where you've kind of like felt like you're at the end of your line and then you hand your your daughter off to someone else 
who then is able to like shape her further yeah or did you personally have any of those experiences in your life? i'm just thinking in immediately about what's been going on with my daughter and absolutely you're 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 so right it's like my wife and i we can do like every we can try so hard to to teach her about something or to make her learn like some lesson but it's not until she goes out into the world and is on her own with her friends or with her teachers or coaches whatever it is that's where it gets solidified so even though at home like my wife and i might think oh like she's like not hearing us she is hearing us but i think it does need it's kind of like a yin yang and then it, it sort of locks in once she's in the in the real world and do you have any of those relationships as a teacher with your students where you feel like maybe their parents like can't get this far but i'm going to Take them over that finish line. Oh, a hundred percent, and that's like one of the cool parts about about teaching. You know, my students amaze me like all the time, and 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 I have students to this day who come back to campus and visit and and say like how like last month a student who graduated like three or four years ago came in, came and found me, and is like, I just want you to know like what you were showing us and and the passion that you were teaching with you know, music production and music composition, like that really like opened up my mind. And like it, it you know, you really had a great influence on me. And, and I just want you to know, like, keep it up. And like for a young person, because usually like when you're teaching, like you don't know when you're going to have an influence or change a young person's life. Like usually you don't know, but like for someone to come in and articulate that, that was like, that was incredible. So yeah, you got to lead with with love, like at every moment. It's not always easy. Like you know, your patience can run out, but you got got to hit the reset button every day. And are you still doing that jam fest or uh, jam fest? We did ten years straight. We raised, I think, we raised about forty or fifty thousand dollars for musiccares.org, which is the charity arm of the Grammy Foundation. That was incredible. We just we're on a bit of a hiatus, although we're we're talking about maybe rebooting it. So it seems like, you know, a band, which, you know, Jam Fest was sort of like a, like a, what do they call it? Like a battle of the bands? Kind of like a battle of the bands, but no one was battling. It was just like bands from local LA schools would get together at a famous venue on the Sunset Strip and perform for, you know, friends and family and community and all the money raised would go to a musiccares.org so i feel i feel like there's a lot of similarities there like you would be working your bands towards that end goal similar to how newton would be like if you guys do really good here you get to wear a tuxedo at the end <laughs> of this thing and we're gonna wear those tuxedos on a parade in downtown elmhurst which is the elmhurst equivalent of the sunset strip right totally which I grew up with. Of course, That man. was my sunset strip. Didn't it premiere at that theater? It did. Yeah. And we made sure to put a shot in the movie and on that street where the York Theater is. It's actually called the York Theater. But I'm wondering, like, you know, are there, I don't know how bands work. Is there ever, like, a time where, like, the drummer's not pulling his weight compared to the guitar player? And yeah, how totally. do bands navigate that emotion? Ooh man you're right like it, it is a it is a team sport unless you're a solo artist with a traveling with a looping pedal then you need band members and being in a family has its ups and its downs and you just gotta hope that everyone can 
as I said earlier, like hit the reset button and and not it's like it's the petty small things that destroy probably bands and families. So we kind of just got to You got to forgive. I, I don't know. I made the decision to be a composer and not like when I was first in L.A., like I was a sideman for some acts that you knew. And and I just decided like either I go on the road and tour to make a living or work in my underwear in my studio, you know, behind closed doors. And, and I'm glad I, I picked that. You should see my studio now. Maybe we can post a photo of it. I think I have photos of it. Oh, yeah. I think you took shots. I think I'm one of your daughter's favorite photographers from what I've heard. So, yeah. So, I think, like, it takes a village, you know? Like, that. that's, like, the great afterword that I've landed on. And in the film, you see the mothers, you know, John Fisher's mother, Connor Chadwick's mother, the twins' mother. Like, all of these characters who... You know, even Ross Detman, who is the twins' father, but also a photographer, his contribution to that team is going to be, you know, infinite because his the way he documented that season and those athletes was so incredible and with so much love and mm-hmm. passion. Mm-hmm. And it's like that was always what Newton landed on. It was like tender, loving care. Yeah, is the secret. That's right. And for the last. 15 years coaches have reached out on email and you know sometimes they're just questioning and sometimes they're angry that there wasn't like a very specific list of workouts Mm. that newton gave his kids that they could give their kids Mm. then but it never was about the workouts or the Mm -hmm. distances or anything Mm -hmm. it was about creating an atmosphere where young men feel safe they feel comfortable they feel at home yeah and they feel loved yeah and that's something that I feel like we just keep getting further and further and further away from. And I think yeah. technology has accelerated that. Yeah, oh, man. You know, we, we joke. I, I interviewed the twins last week, and we were, were talking about there's, like, that scene where they get the viral infection. Mm-hmm. And they're, like, on their flip phones. Mm-hmm. And I remember Brady and I being all kind of envious, being like, gosh, can you imagine when we were in high school if we had a phone? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now they have a phone, they have internet, they got a video camera, they got mm-hmm. a photo camera, they can upload it, they can live stream it. Mm-hmm. And so, like, the experience is so different. Yeah. And Nick, like, in the trailer and the sizzle, the, the sample that we put together, mm-hmm. we always had Newton at his most passionate, which mm-hmm. was anger, angry passion. Mm-hmm. But I think that's still passion. It Even is. Even though it comes from a place of anger, he, he, that's just, that was his truest self. That's right. You can't lie and be passionate. Right. And so if that happened today, I'm still not sure if Newton would be, would have finished the season. If somebody had been live streaming that on mm. Twitter or on Facebook mm-hmm. or on Instagram and some parents found out about it. Mm. And they were anti-vax and anti-yell. Oh, man. Or whatever that possibly could be. Right. Like, who knows? Right. So there was something beautiful about the lifetime of Joe Newton. Mm. It started and ended just in time mm. for this world to enjoy him mm-hmm. and to appreciate him and to get that, those, to be taught mm-hmm. those things. And so that's why I'm so grateful that we're able to do this now. Like, you know, this, this technology is, is literally you know, infinite mm-hmm. now that we don't have to pay $1,300 for a 500 gigabyte hard drive, <laughs> but I have like a 128 gigabyte chip in this mem- in this audio recorder right. and we can record for five hours. Right. No problem. And so, you know, we, we are, 
and it, it's it's great to have you here because this is really the birthplace. Yeah. There is no other birthplace for this film than this place. That's right, man. On Sweetser Avenue. That's in right. West Hollywood, California. I'm going to put my hat on. And I got to put mine on. Mine's over there. Can you throw it to me? <laughs> we'll, we'll take a picture of this for the internet. <laughs> but I have the official Long Green Line hat. Kyle somehow got a York Dukes hat. I don't know where you got that what? hat. Are you kidding me? Yeah, where'd you get that? You gave it to me. I can't. Well, I'm going to give you the. <laughs> so that one's, that's the fish. You didn't go to York High School, though. You went to Canada High School. <laughs> Yo, I, I did. did. Oh, man. So there's so much, like, amazing tradition. And I feel like we really crafted something beautiful from this building this apartment this unit yeah and for those of you who are listening this is not a tiny little apartment this is a big apartment it's two bedrooms with a huge office a view of the hills a view of the hills parking in the heart of west hollywood and the reason i'm still here is because of the beauty of rent control we'll just say that (laughs) thank you city of west hollywood mayor horvath and everyone else who's involved yes but there's value in that this this to me this community represents so much about community york high school rep in york high school cross country represents so much of community and i think that we need more of this in america for me one of the big things in the last couple years we had this president who won on a campaign about greatness and he talked about make america great again but joe newton had a different greatness slogan and he said it's nice to be great but far greater to be nice yeah to me the latter sounds a lot more canadian than the other (laughs) oh man so as a canadian let me know your thoughts on greatness and american greatness and what does that mean what does it represent how does the world perceive us i mean i'm gonna go off script here man like it doesn't matter if you're american it doesn't matter if you're canadian it doesn't matter where you're from like we are all people we all need to be loved we all need to be accepted we all want to feel safe and you know be part of a family we need we need food we need water like that is that is what it is man i don't I don't want to put labels on it. Like, I've been living here for a long time. I love the United States. I love what I've been able to do. My life is, you know, I'm eligible for citizenship. For all I know, in a year, I'm going to be a citizen of the country, you know? So, I don't know. What was your question? <laughs> what, what, what do you think about greatness and how it relates to America and or Canada? What is greatness? Greatness is 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 just situations and relationships where both parties win. I don't know. I don't know what else to to say. Like it, it, it kind of everything kind of boils down to the same basic principles of, of of love and and tolerance and acceptance. Like it makes such a big a big difference, you know. And do you find people in California to be more open and loving than Canada, or is it pretty equal? I don't know. I mean, everyone, you know, the stereotype for Canadians is that they're generally, like, just nicer. And, yeah, maybe maybe that's a thing. There's great people in California. There's great people in, you know, like, all over. It just, it just are, you, are you lucky enough to, 
to attract those people into your life and and maybe if if you're not if you're not experiencing love and 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 I don't know what I'm trying to say if you're not experiencing enough love in your day to day then maybe it's a wake up call that you're living not the wrong way but that you, maybe you you want to like take a, a look in the mirror and and reevaluate some of your some of your priorities some of your ways awesome i want to just ask another question about you know you're now a father you have a father we all have a father is there anything that you identify in joe newton that you saw in your father and how he brought you up i mean the one thing that my dad was always saying was like do what you love and the money will follow and some pretty great advice i think it took a lot of guts for my dad to say that considering you know he was a lawyer but do do what you love and the money will follow like i think that's some pretty some pretty kick-ass advice that that i would definitely i would just say you know there's certain things that you need in your life every day to be who you really are and again maybe you're not gonna make your passion your full-time uh job or or income but you'll always have it and and make sure that you you practice those things every day that you need to be the real you because that is that is what will make or break your your general sense of happiness and and self-worth and and your ability to love yourself so play to your strengths because everyone has them that totally reminded me of a clip from one of the interviews this really really hits home especially today and this was recorded probably 14 years ago it, this is joe v hill he still does teach, coach a lot of the olympians but he's the olympic distance coach long distance and here's here's his quote it really hits home to what you just said we have a narcissistic culture everybody's concerned about themselves individually and what they're going to gain out of something materialistically you don't chase money there are two goddesses in your heart the goddess of wisdom and the goddess of wealth. What people have to understand is that they've got to give all their attention to the goddess of wisdom and, and love her and, and cherish her and give her all your time and attention. And the more you do that, the more jealous the goddess of wealth will become and follow you. <laughs> that was so awesome. I, I want to play it again. We have a narcissistic culture and everybody's concerned about themselves individually and what they're going to gain out of something materialistically. And uh, you don't chase money. There are two goddesses in your heart, the goddess of wisdom and the goddess of wealth. What people have to understand is that they've got to give all their attention to the goddess of wisdom and, and love her and, and cherish her and give her all your time and attention. And the more you do that, the more jealous the goddess of wealth will become and follow you. That is so powerful, and I love that. Thank you for reminding me of that. And it is like the most Buddha kind of a statement that a coach could make. Mm -hmm. That, you know, you have there's passion and there's wealth. And if you chase passion, the wealth will find you. And you're talking about material wealth, because remember, the wealth, the, the, there's other types of wealth. And, but he was referring to the economic wealth. 
Indeed. Thanks so much for for sitting down for this. I, do you have any other things you want to add? Thank you. I mean, this was this was this was exciting to sort of re. I mean, rehash. Like, how many years was it? It was twelve years. Well, we started filming. The first shot we recorded was in two thousand four. Coach Newton was visiting, or he was in in Southern California in Orange County at a conference, a coaches conference in Irvine. We went there. We went down there <laughs> to Irvine, and we recorded the first interview. And there are actually some pieces of that first interview in the movie. Wow. And then we started editing. We, we edited like a sample, and we were like, this is good, but I don't know. And it felt like we needed to actually follow a season. And so then we, I talked to Brady, and we came to the agreement. Brady was going to move back home into his parents' basement. He was going to live there. He was going to go to every practice and create this rapport with the, with the team and just be a fly on the wall for every single important race. And I was up there for, you know, the, the early season. So all the preseason stuff, like the golf course stuff where they're wearing those goofy costumes. We went up there for that. I mean, I was up there for that. And then I flew back probably eight times during that season. So it was like every major meet. I remember I would fly in typically on a red eye on a Friday. My dad would pick me up at, at, at O'Hare, 5 a.m., We'd go to McDonald's, get a breakfast sandwich, and then there'd usually be a meet that after, that that day. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'd take a nap or something for like an hour or something because you land at 5, you eat by 6, and then the meet starts at about 10. <laughs> and so then we would shoot. We would shoot the meet, and then usually we'd have an interview lined up for that weekend, Friday or Saturday afternoon or Sunday morning, and then I'd fly back Sunday morning, and I'd be back in L.A. to teach on Monday morning. So that was 2004. Three, four, and five. So 2005 okay. was the main season. Okay. And then we really started editing, I want to say, in 2006, like late 2006 and okay. seven. We tried to raise money for a long time and kind of got d- jaded by that whole process. Mm-hmm. And then we were like, you know what? Let's see if we can do this with credit cards and everything yeah. we can get have to get by. And we, you know, slapped it together, pieced it together, and we premiered at the U.S. Olympic Trials in Eugene, Oregon in 2008. Mm. Wow. So, like, that process, start to finish, it, you know, it's three to four years, I think, all in. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I think you said it best. I'm, I'm so proud of the work that we did on this film, that you did on this film, that we collaborate on this film. We were both, neither of us had ever done anything. Yeah, yeah. And this is like our first IMDb credit. Right, right, right. And the fact that, you know, I, I still hold dearly the fact that we did most of this film on laptops. Yeah. I was, you were sitting in, to my left. Alex was sitting in front of me. I was sitting like on like a chair in the middle. I had like my feet up on an ottoman or something. And yeah. I had a laptop on my lap. Yeah. He had a laptop on his his desktop and you had one as well yeah you were doing the music alex was editing and i was doing the motion graphics thank you steve jobs thank you steve jobs it, it, it's an incredible you know we were you know this is really one of the like the original garage band of a movie mm-hmm. you know if there's a movie version of what a garage band was like starting out in your parents basement or your back office or whatever you can you can make this stuff and so for yeah. the kids out there like you have no excuses. You oh, guys yeah. have iPhones. Your iPhones shoot 4K video. They oh, yeah. edit 4K video. You can make music on your iPhone. 
You can sing right into your iPhone. There were so many equipment layers that we had to overcome just to accomplish what we accomplished. And it's given me as a teacher now the insight to do things from analog all the way into digital. Mm -hmm. But, you know, stories are still what matter. And I think what we stuck to was love and passion. And in this world of toxic masculinity, I think this movie still holds a lot of weight and value for the planet. This movie's got legs, man. Like, think about it. Like, my cross-country coach from high school reached out to me a couple years after the film came out. He's like, hey, I just showed the film to the team, and I saw your name in the credits. Like, And then the cross-country coach at the current school I'm working at, he's like, yeah, we, you know, he showed it to that team. And so every year there's new runners coming onto the teams, and the film has legs, you know? Yeah, it's awesome. So, so hopefully, if you're out there and you're connecting with this podcast, with the film, in, engage with the community and continue to spread these messages of tender, loving care and the value of passion and the value of just choosing a path and following it, like that arrow that Kyle was talking about. Yeah. That just aim your arrow and just know that, like, the support you need is going to get, is going to surface to take you to your goal. Yeah. Do what you love, guys. I love what I'm doing. I love what I'm doing. I love what I'm doing. <laughs> and so I just listen to the Long Green Line soundtrack. It's so great. It's available on all the streams. Do you want to plug anything else on your, your side? You have a website. Is that true? I've got a website. It's kylewhitland.com. I'm just at the tail end of uh, making a, an instrumental reggae album. I'm also releasing another album with some of the music from a couple other documentaries that I scored. And, you know. Just thank you guys for listening, and, and thank you, Matt, for for all of this stuff, man. Thank you for, deal. for just being the, the you know, I, at that whole time, my company was called Idea, and I always joked that your company should be called Heardia, because <laughs> I was the visual, and you right, were the right, audio. Right. right. But check out Kyle Whitland. The, the soundtrack is available on all the streaming platforms. If you just Google it, it'll show up on yeah. Spotify, YouTube, music. Yeah. Amazon Music, wherever you choose to consume. Give it a couple of runs. Add it to your running playlist. It really will keep you inspired. It'll keep you going. Reach out. Let us know what you think of the film, of the music, of all of it. Um, it's really one of the great honors of my life to sit down with this man, Kyle Whitland. He is a solid, solid human being. And I hope you all continue to enjoy his music for the next 20 to 40 to 50 years. Thank you, Matt Arnold and The Long Green Line. So we're signing off. Much love to Mr. Newton and uh, the man who created this, this, this energy to create this momentum to go forward. And we will see you on the next one. See you later on the Long Green Line podcast. Signing off. I hope you enjoyed listening to the Long Green Line podcast. Please subscribe, comment, and share these episodes with your friends. Every time you engage with our podcast, more listeners are able to find us. Thanks again to Kyle Whitland for sitting down and talking to us about his experience with the Long Green Line. You can find out more about Kyle Whitland and listen to all his music on all the streaming platforms. His main portal is kylewhitland.com. Stay tuned next time. We're going to be talking with John Fisher, who coined the phrase, cross-country is like life, in the Long Green Line movie. You can find us at www.longgreenlinemovie.com.
I love what I'm doing. I love what I'm doing. I love what I'm doing.